Today on Ag News Daily. We just started discussing things as President-elect Reagan was looking forward to things he wanted to do, what his policies were, his priorities. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and happy Friday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell coming at you solo today as Mike is traveling back from Rochester, Minnesota, so I'm sure we'll get an update on his travels there, what he heard from growers in that part of Minnesota on the podcast next week. So it's just me today chatting through this Friday episode. We've got a few fun pieces of news before a really great conversation that I had with former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture John Block, who of course served as secretary during the Reagan administration. Really interesting guy, got a lot of interesting stories, so I do encourage you to stay tuned for that portion of the podcast. But before we get to that, let's chat through a little news on this Friday afternoon. We saw some House passed legislation that could find its way to President Trump's desk by the end of this week. We saw the emergency spending package dealing with an anti-coronavirus is on the fast track. It sailed through the House on Thursday with a 415 to a 2 vote, and it is set for the Senate floor this afternoon, just, just before we're recording the podcast here. And so essentially this bill is about 7 not quite $8 billion in discretionary funds that would help vaccines, develop vaccines, stockpile equipment, conduct research, and would also give some incentives, some monetary incentive to the FDA to contain and control the virus should it get out of hand here in the United States. I'm just going to say that uh, this whole coronavirus thing, in my opinion, and I think Mike's and a lot of other people's, is really, really overblown. I was having a discussion with that this morning about that this morning with a few people, and it's like, yes, we understand the coronavirus is scary. It's a pandemic, if you will. And I guess the reason that so many folks are scared of this compared to maybe the flu or, you know, other common diseases or viruses that kill folks is this one is very fast spreading. And so that's a lot of the concern behind why, or concern really as to why this virus is getting so much attention in the limelight, if you will. But I think it's crazy that people are canceling spring vacation spring break vacations or just traveling. I could understand maybe not traveling to China or Italy, but I heard on the radio the other morning that somebody canceled their vacation to the Bahamas because they were nervous about contracting it. When I'm not even sure the Bahamas have any confirmed cases yet. So I guess some people like to err on the side of caution. I perhaps am not one of those people and knowing that uh, I probably won't contract the coronavirus and I don't think I'm going to let that affect any travel plans coming up. But I guess better safe, not sorry in some people's minds. And that's that's great if that's the mindset you have. But I think your chances of contracting this virus are pretty dang low. So I think I'd rather risk a trip than uh, sit at home and twiddle my thumbs. But that's just me. In other news... We saw the Trump administration is planning to fight an appellate court ruling that we've talked about here on the podcast multiple times before dealing with small refinery exemption waivers. We saw that the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals struck down three different small refinery exemptions, which again, we've talked about here on the podcast, but for a little refresh, essentially... 
this ruling came out, checking the date here, just just about a month ago, just over a month ago, at the end of January, we saw the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals struck down three small refinery exemptions, essentially saying that the EPA cannot extend exemptions to a small refinery if they let that exemption lapse. So in the case of Cheyenne, Wyoming, we saw that they had a small refinery waiver in 2012, but didn't apply for an extension in 2013 or 14, and then came back in 2015 and said, hey, we need another extension. And so the 10th Circuit Court said, you can't do that. EPA, you can't do that. You can't extend those exemption waivers because, quite frankly, there's nothing to extend if their waiver if their waiver lapsed. So now, instead of seeing perhaps the Trump administration side on the air of caution and perhaps improve relations with the biofuels industry, they're instead taking the stance that the EPA should be allowed to do this. And so they're going to fight that 10th Circuit Court of Appeals decision don't know exactly how they're going to fight it, but uh, they're essentially going to try and say that the EPA does have the authority to grant these waivers even after time lapses, and those waivers technically lapsed by calendar year. So it's a little bit of a blow to biofuel industries. Quite a few biofuel folks are not supportive of this recent move, and... We saw uh, National Corn Growers Association, the Renewable Fuels Association, as well as other folks all in support of, of course, renewable fuels, said that year after year with the same lies about refinery profits disproven over and over by, by economists, the EPA, and even Big Oil, we urge the president to stand up now against this misguided effort to torpedo the rural economy. So they're definitely not happy about the Trump administration's plans to fight this appellate court ruling. What will this mean for the biofuels industry? I think that's yet to be seen. We, of course, don't know if they have any burden or barrier of burden of power, really, I guess you could call it here, to fight that court of appeals uh, ruling. And so I think that's just another thing we're going to have to wait and see on. But definitely not making a lot of folks, not making any friends in the biofuels industry, that's for sure. We also saw, I guess not making any friends with maybe folks on the other side of the aisle, the Department of Agriculture has just released a new proposed rule addressing yet again work requirements as part of the SNAP nutrition package. This new proposed rule that was announced on Thursday would essentially allow employees or allow employment and training to employees that can't find jobs, but uses the funding to pay for apprenticeships and job training as opposed to whatever else they were doing previously. It also allows the states to provide job retention services for a minimum of 30 days once a participant receives a job. So continuing some 
resources for folks once they get into a new role, into a new job. And it also adds a workforce partnership for SNAP participants to meet work requirements and establish a funding formula for recall reallocated employment and training funds. So in a nutshell, it sounds like the USDA is pushing more job training more folks to be able to get into a job, retain a job, have some resources or have some folks that they can talk to to ensure that they actually stick with that job by the 30-day 30 uh, 30-day retention services that they are putting together. How will this be met by the Democratic Party who have largely been against SNAP workforce changes is yet to be seen. We just literally just saw this released as of yesterday afternoon, but this starts the comments period. So I'm sure we'll hear lots of comments from folks, maybe on both sides of the aisle, about what this means. Is this a good plan, a good program, etc. Speaking on folks on the other side of the aisle from the Trump administration, we are seeing House Agriculture Committee Chairman Colin Peterson, who is, of course, one of the House Democrats' most influential voice on farm policy, of course, representing the great state of Minnesota, who has been in office for nearly two, get two decades. He announced this afternoon that he's running for re-election to his 16th term in Congress. He also went on to say that if he runs for re-election in 2020, he's also committed to running again in 2022 to ensure that he can help oversee the development of the next farm bill. He has been on the House Ag Committee since about 2008 when that farm bill passed and has worked his way up in the rankings to be, of course, one of the most influential Democrats in that role in that office, in that side of the spectrum. Okay, but as I mentioned, I had some more fun news for today's Fry Yay episode. I was reading this article because I've been really fascinated as of lately with consumer tastes and preferences and also consumer trends, what we're seeing as far as the, you know, scary millennial generation, which Mike and I are both a part of, as well as I'm sure some other folks on the podcast. But I was reading this article called How Millennials Are Changing the Food Industry. And so as I talk about in, in some of my speeches, millennials are a generation of instant gratification. We like things now. We like things at our fingertips, hence Twitter, Facebook, podcasts, for example. Well, we also see millennials prefer that instant gratification, that immediate need when it comes to food trends as well. This year alone, the millennial generation is poised to take over as the most spending power. So currently, up until this year, baby boomers have really been the ones driving the economics of food, if you will, the purchasing of food in restaurants, grocery stores, etc. This year, however, millennials are taking over and we're going to have more spending power than baby boomers. Why that's important or why I think that's interesting is our generation, the millennial generation, is also one of the most I'm going to say lazy, I guess, for a lack of better terms, but immediate gratification. We like food that's easy. We don't like to spend a lot of time preparing food. We like convenience. And so this millennial generation is expected to really increase restaurant spending, as we already do. Uh, according to this study and this 
article I've been reading, millennials eat out on average at least once a week compared to some of our older generations, our previous generations, which is, you know, once every two, three weeks. And so we're really at this cool, interesting moment where we see millennials coming in, having more money to spend, and are going to spend it on things like restaurants, prepared meals, mail kits like Blue Apron or uh, whatever the other ones are. That's the only one that's coming to mind right now. But also prepared foods from grocery stores, restaurants, etc. So I don't know. I thought that was pretty interesting. I'm going to make sure and share this article in next week's Global Ag Network newsletter so you all can read through it for yourself. But last story, I promise, before we check out the markets for today, which isn't quite as fun of a story, is kind of a funny piece of news sent to us by podcast listener Gary Rasmussen. And of course, you can always send in your Friday or any news stories to us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ag News Daily. But this one's coming to us from Gary Rasmussen up there in the Uper part of Michigan. And so the title of this article is Louisiana driver caught with license plate that expired in 1997 told police they've been busy and forgot. So I think the headline pretty much gives that away there. But essentially, a Louisiana driver had been driving around with a license plate that was nearly 20 years expired. It happened in 1997 when he was pulled over by a police officer. He said, sorry, officer, I've been busy lately and totally forgot to renew my vehicle registration. I will take care of it as soon as I get home. End of story. Just a short little funny piece of Friday news there. I have a hard time believing that you'd forget about renewing your vehicle license plate registration for 20 years, but... What do I know? All right. Well, glad we ended things in the news cycle on a positive note because the markets today did not end on a high note. Unfortunately, this week has just been a rough week for the grain markets. Starting off here with the March corn contract closed down seven and a quarter cent to end at three seventy seven and a quarter, while the May cut five and three quarters cents to close at three seventy six even. In the soybean pits, the March contract shed five and three quarters cents to end at eight eighty three and a quarter, while the May cut five and three quarters cents to end at eight ninety one and a quarter. In the March wheat pits, the the front month contract lost three cents to close at five twenty one and a quarter. The May shed three cents as well to end at five fifteen and three quarters. Taking a look into the livestock markets for today, the red and weakness continues into the cattle complex as the April contract shed two ninety to close at one hundred five seventy five. The June dropped two sixty two to close at one hundred oh two even. Jeez, we are getting down there in some of these live cattle markets. In the feeder cattle pits, the March contract shed two ninety two to close at one thirty seventy, while the April limit down today to close at one thirty oh five. In the lean hog markets, the only green today on the screen, with the April contract closing fifty five cents higher to end the day at sixty five ninety two, while the May up fifteen cents to close at seventy one thirty seven and a half. And rounding out our markets with the Class 3 milk futures, the March contract is unchanged on the day to close at 16.37, while the April down 5 cents to close at 16.01. Without further ado, let's turn it over to my conversation with former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, John Block. 
Secretary Block, tell me a little bit about, you said you have a farm now in Illinois, is that right? Yes, I was born and raised on this farm in Illinois, and of course, when I grew up as a boy out here going to a one-room country school, uh, it was not a big farm. It was about 180 acres, but our farm today is 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 bigger, a lot bigger. It's 4,000 acres, and and, uh, and we're raising a lot of hogs, about six or 7,000 to market every year, so... It's it's just different than it was, but over the years that I was here, after I uh, uh, completed my tour with the 101st Airborne Division, jumping out of perfectly good airplanes, I I came back to the farm to farm with my dad, and uh, that's when we started expanding the farm business, and I bought up over the years. You know, you think that's a long time back, because I came back to the farm in 1960. And then over all those years since then, I've bought farmland out here a little piece at a time. And uh, so that's how it got bigger. So how did you go from jumping out of airplanes to then farming to then deciding that you wanted to essentially serve in policy roles for agriculture? Well, it's like a lot of things, uh, probably in everybody's life, but certainly in mine. There's some things I didn't really exactly plan. I I even going back when I uh, applied for to go to college, I I was accepted at uh, Northwestern University, an Illinois institution, and but then working with uh, a friend of mine that uh, uh, was a member had gone to the Naval Academy, I I thought well I'll try to see if I can get in there, and I couldn't get in there, but they said they had a an opening for West Point. If I took an exam and could uh, get, I guess, good enough grade on that, I took the exam, and the next thing I knew, I was at West Point. I went there for four years. Then I went into the 101st Airborne Division. But my my dad, uh, uh, you know, he opened the door for me to come back and farm with him, which I did. And then over a period of time, I just started to uh, get involved in Farm Bureau and the Illinois Corn Growers Association, and uh, one thing led to another. And as I was farming with him, which I did for 17 years right here on the, you know, boots on the ground, uh, well, I had a, a new governor elected in Illinois, Jim Thompson, and then uh, somebody that knew me because I had worked in Farm Bureau a lot, uh, gave my name to him and uh, Jim Thompson governor elect had me come to interview for state director of agriculture. So it's, it was almost an accident that uh, I got pulled into that. But I thought, my gosh, I can help the, the state of Illinois and learn a lot and uh, we'll keep the farm going. So also, so I, I took that job after he interviewed me and then he invited me to be state director. And that. That was the first step. And then after four years there, I didn't know President Reagan. I'd never met him. I did go to an event where he was a speaker one time, but uh, people that knew me and uh, and uh, I was state director of agriculture, as you know, and I one morning I went and picked up the Wall Street Journal and 
as I did every day, their work day, I read it, and there was an article, and Senator Bob Dole of Kansas had said, here's my names for individuals that should be considered for Secretary of Agriculture. And I was astounded. My name was on the list. Uh, so next thing I knew, after a while, it, 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 all these other names, some of them dropped off the list. And uh, Senator Dole sent a map of the United States with little dots where President-elect Ronald Reagan had uh, chosen individuals for all of the cabinet offices, and most of them were picked. Uh, and Senator Dole sent this and said, uh, you picked all these officers for the cabinet from the East Coast and the West Coast, and I think you should pick uh, someone from the heartland, a hands-on farmer for Secretary of Agriculture. It, it wasn't a week after that, and I got a call from the White House uh, or for, from the president's team to uh, come to California and interview and meet him and see him because I had, didn't meet him before or really know him. And I flew to California and got in a cab and went to the president's home in, Cal in Los Angeles and uh, knocked on the door and Nancy answered the door and I just came out and uh, and came on in, and she offered me a cup of coffee, and the next thing I knew, I was in the living room sitting down with President-elect Ronald Reagan and Ed Meese, his number number one guy, and uh, one or two other officers. And uh, we interviewed. I went back to the hotel room. The phone rang, and... Uh, I picked up the phone and it was the president-elect Reagan. And he says, I want you to be my secretary of agriculture. Yeah, there you go. The whole story, things kind of fell into place. I think people should always have an open mind for opportunities, which I, I always have had, but uh, those doors opened for me and I stepped in and did it. It was a wonderful experience and, honored to serve a great president in our country. That is such a fantastic story. I love that. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, That's so neat, too. And it's neat to finally hear from somebody what that process looks like, because I think a lot of folks wonder what, you know, what gets asked at that meeting where you could potentially become the next secretary of agriculture. Do you remember any of the questions he asked you or the conversation itself? I know it's been quite some years ago. Well, no, when we, uh, when I went there to the president's home and sat down with him and he, uh, we just started discussing things as president elect Reagan was looking forward to things he wanted to do what his policies were, his priorities. Of course, I'd, I'd seen and knew a lot about his priorities as, uh, during the election process. So it wasn't new to me, but the reality was, it was true. I, I, I heartily agreed and supported uh, the president's policies and what he wanted to do and the things he was trying to accomplish. 
And so we talked about that kind of stuff. We didn't talk about, uh, you know, uh, when are you going to plant your soybeans or, or what about what's the price of corn uh, or who, who's our trading partners? We, honestly, we didn't get into the grassroots discussion on agriculture as much as it was his broader policies. And, and, and then after he did select me and I was in the job as Secretary of Agriculture, I learned that if you just do your job and uh, stay between the lines, stay within his policy positions on issues, uh, you're going to be just fine if you can do it well. The thing you don't want to do is try to uh, go the wrong direction <laughs> on on certain issues. And uh, we had one or two cabinet members that did that, uh, that kind of didn't work out that well with President Reagan. Uh, but uh, it was a great experience to do that. And I found that I was in pretty much uh, in line with him anyway on almost all major policy issues. And I think that, I mean, there's been multiple studies done that look at the divide that we see now in, in bipartisanship and just, I mean, take this last farm bill, for example, and the amount of time that it took to get that actually passed. What's it been like for you to watch our political system change, probably since you were in office, where we see a lot more political division between parties? Well, we certainly have more political division between parties today. It, it is, uh, I think it's unfortunate. I can't believe that we can't find uh, some middle ground on more occasions. Uh, but it's not, it's not that we didn't used to have divisions and problems. Alexander Haig was uh, Ronald Reagan's secretary of state. And he had a, you know, a former general. He had strong opinions of what he believed. And uh, the uh, Jimmy Carter had imposed a grain embargo uh, on the Soviet Union. It was just killing agriculture and our, our exports. Because the Soviet Union in those days imported a huge amount of, of food products. And uh, they paid cash on the barrel head. And it was hurting us because we had an embargo on them because, because if you can imagine, they had invaded Afghanistan. Of course, now we've been there 18 years ourselves, but that's another story. But, uh, and uh, the president had promised to, to get rid of that grain embargo to help the farm, farmers that were suffering. And Alexander Haig at the first cabinet meeting stood up and really lambasted that idea and didn't want to didn't want to do anything to uh, open that uh, grain business with the Soviet Union he wanted something in return he wanted to punish them until they gave us some kind of a special deal on something well after uh, about a year less than a year or something like that uh, Alexander Haig lost his job and it, it and uh and the president, in the meantime, had uh, ended the grain embargo as I wanted him to, and we moved forward on that. Wow, you just have so many stories. I'm sure that we could go on and on talking about all of them. Well, there's a lot of stories, <laughs> but I'm glad that I was involved and 
and we did them. I was just talking to another friend of mine. I remember uh, the president was trying to get control of a lot of costly government programs, and and a lot of the the press. See, the national press then they were beating us up too, just like they beat up uh, uh, our president today. It's the same thing. In in some respects, we were. Uh, I remember they were beating us up because. They didn't think that we were providing enough food stamps and money for food food stamps. And uh, the, the food stamps didn't give them enough food. So I decided I'm going to uh, take a week and I, I'll, I'll buy with the money the same amount that they would give a, a family. And there were four of us, uh, my wife and the two others. And so there are four of us. And I'll go buy whatever the food stamps can buy, food for a week, and that's what I'm going to eat. Nothing more. I'm not going to go and get an ice cream cone or go buy this or that. I'll stay within the food stamps food that I bring home or my wife and I brought home. (laughs) And we ate that for a week. And so then I went and had a press conference when it was over. And I'd already told them I was going to do it. So, boy, they were just anxious. So I came there and I said, look, I weighed myself this morning. And I weighed before we started. I didn't lose any weight at all. I'm perfectly happy. I had enough food. So I'm going to tell you, the food stamp program is just fine. We're doing a good job serving the people that need it. Well, that was another example of things we did. That's a good, I love that. That's a great example. That's funny to see, you know, a politician test it out and, and try it and share their feedback. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Secretary uh, Block, I guess final question for you. What what advice do you have for other folks in agriculture to get involved or maybe not necessarily in a policy role, but just to get involved and make their voices heard? Well, I think that, uh, that's one way we have an influence is if we do step forward and try to get our voices heard. And, and I started out very simply a County Farm Bureau board. I got on the board of directors. I was uh, president of the Knox County Farm Bureau here in Illinois. And then I went from there, as you know, I was on the uh, state Farm Bureau board and they had a group called the Farm Bureau Young Farmers Association, and I was part of that. I'm saying that I think young people that are in the ag business should step forward and get involved in a lot of the different organizations. It could be the pork producers and the cattlemen or whatever one they choose, or more than one for that matter. And that's what you do. Get involved, and then it might lead you down the road to something that you might really like doing. Secretary Block, that's fantastic advice. I really appreciate your time. Well, I'm glad to be with you, and I'm glad we could do it, and I wish you the very best. Well, again, a big thank you there to Secretary Block. Interesting guy, really interesting stuff. I feel like he's the type of guy you could just go on for hours listening to all the stories and probably still not even scratch the surface on the level of knowledge the things he's seen and heard and out throughout his time serving agriculture. But that's really spokes like that, that make me inspired to keep doing what I'm doing here in agriculture. And I hope you all feel somewhat the same way, whether it's secretary block or another 
person in agriculture that's made you feel like that, that you want to keep going and keep working in this fantastic industry. That's it, though. I promise I'm done being sentimental. And uh, that wraps up another Ag News Daily podcast for the week. But of course, you can always connect with us on social media at Ag News Daily on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also listen to our past episodes if perhaps you are a new listener tuning in with us. Find us at agnewsdaily.com. Check out our episodes as well as other great podcasts on Global Ag Network. With that, I hope you all have a fantastic weekend and we'll see you back here on Monday. (laughs) 